Good. We have been going for some time through our Confession of Faith in London, Confession of Faith, seeing how it uh, puts together particular, um, uh, well, it summarizes the doctrines of Scripture, taking into account what all of God's Word has to say about a particular doctrine. And we've been working through how the Confession summarizes the doctrine of justification, and I wanted to read paragraph three to you this morning. It says, by his obedience and death, Christ fully paid the debt of all those who were justified. He endured in their place the penalty that they deserved. By this sacrifice of himself in his bloodshed on the cross, he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice on their behalf. Yet their justification is based entirely on free grace because he was given by the Father for them and his obedience and satisfaction were accepted in their place. These things were done freely, not because of anything in them, so that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God would be glorified in the justification of sinners. And so God alone truly does get the glory for our salvation. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 110. And just by way of reminder, we obviously are not doing our children's ministry that we run through first grade this morning. Your kids are welcome in here. We love having them in here. If they get a little fussy, you can take them out for a minute, get them settled, bring them back in. We're thankful for them to be able to, thankful to God for them to be able to learn the rhythms of worship just alongside of us. Uh, We have uh, been going through over uh, the month of December, we've just been considering together Christ as creator and Christ as uh, prophet and Christ as priest. And this morning, we're going to consider Christ as king. And so allow me to read Psalm 110, and then I'm going to pray. And then we are going to, again, consider Jesus as our eternal and as our good king. So the word of the Lord says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. Verse four. This will be familiar from last week. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up ahead. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to spend time together as a church family and to spend time together in your word, considering the significance of Christ fulfilling the roles of prophet, priest, and king. And so, Lord, as we consider Christ as king this morning, we ask that you would, by your spirit, help us 
Help us to think clearly. Help us to think rightly according to your word. And we ask ultimately, God, that your spirit would change us as a result of having been here this morning. We ask that your spirit would conform us more to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're, we're going to consider Christ as King this morning, and I'm thankful that on Christmas Eve, we were remembering not just the, the condescension of Christ, that, that the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and He came to earth to seek and save us, that He took our sins upon Himself and went to the cross and received the just punishment, the righteous wrath of the Father for our sins, and He took those sins into the grave and bodily and eternally resurrected, right? That's the, the, the aspect of his condescension, but, but we're also going to consider Christ as king this morning. Again, not that just he bodily and eternally resurrected, but he declared that he has all authority in heaven, has all authority on earth. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is ruling and reigning over what's visible over what's invisible, in other words, over everything, that he's doing that presently. That's something glorious for us to to come and to consider this morning as God's church. And for those of us who've been following along over the last few weeks, last week in particular, verse 4, as I noted, would would stick out to you. It's where we spent a lot of our time last week, and we saw how the author of the preacher to the Hebrew church, how he utilized Psalm 110 and ascribed it uh, to Christ. And I wanted to come back because Psalm 110 also clearly speaks about Jesus as our King. And I I wanted to read you this psalm in its broader context. Uh, There's no way that we can cover everything or even scratch the surface. I only have three hours that I've allotted for the sermon this morning, but <clears throat> you're, laugh- you're laughing. Uh, uh. But if, if we were to break this psalm down, uh, I, this is how I would break the psalm down. Verses 1 to 3, and I'd encourage you, look, look at Psalm 110 with me as, I, as I'm talking through this, but Verses 1 to 3 and verses 5 and 7, I think, could go under the banner of Christ as king, okay? Verse 4, I think, in many ways, stands alone in that chapter, and uh, it's there that we spent last week considering Christ as priest. Uh, so we, we, we did that last week, and, and this morning, I want to cover some aspects of verses 1 to 3 and some aspects of verses 5 to 7, but I'm going to give special attention to the first two verses of Psalm 110, and you'll see why that's the case in just a moment. Now, this is truly a messianic psalm. In fact, uh, it would be appropriate for us to call this particular psalm the messianic psalm. And the reason that I'm distinguishing it that way is because much of what um, we point to in the Psalms and in the Old Testament in general, it has an immediate fulfillment during the Old Testament days, but it finds its ultimate fulfillment, or it finds its, uh, to put it another way, its spiritual fulfillment 
in Christ Jesus. And if you're a regular here at Deer Park, you know that that's something that we were consistent in doing. That's nothing new for us to read and to think through the Scriptures in that way. But this particular psalm, it does stand apart in that it has no historical fulfillment. It has no historical fulfillment. It's solely about the divine Messiah, the one who would come in his humanity in the line of David, but one who's truly Lord and truly God. In fact, this psalm is so clear as it relates to it being considered the messianic psalm that Matthew Henry, uh, he called this psalm pure gospel. He called it pure gospel. And, and Henry said that because he saw Christ so clearly in this particular psalm. But what reason do we have from Scripture to attribute this psalm written so many years prior to the incarnation, to, to God taking on flesh? Right? What reason do we have to attribute it so clearly and so exclusively to Jesus? Now, there are several reasons that are going to come up organically as I'm preaching through this passage, but I want to give you a primary reason from Scripture right up front as we just approach together contemplating Christ as King. And the reason why I want to do this first is because I think it shows us the appropriateness of uh, interpreting the psalm the way that we're interpreting it this morning. So look at the very first verse with me, Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, again, I'm going to spend a considerable amount of time just on this verse, but pay attention just to the first few words. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, I know that this may sound technical, but I, I want you to follow with me for a moment because this is important, okay? In some of your translations, you'll see that the, the first Lord is capitalized. And when you see this, it indicates that the the Hebrew word that's underlying our English translation is Yahweh. Okay, it's Yahweh. Yahweh being the, the name of our triune God, the God of Israel. The second Lord in, in the phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, that we see in this passage, is not capitalized by Yahweh, but it, it denotes high authority. It's the word donah, which, which we hear the word Adonai from, right? And, and it's properly translated as Lord. It indicates someone like a person that has power and has authority and has influence, somebody that is a true master. And in the psalm, we see a, a possessive adjective that precedes the second Lord, King David, who's the one who, who wrote this psalm, he's the human author of this psalm, he says, Yahweh said to my Lord. Right? David, who's king at the time, he calls the second Lord his master, particularly his master, his authority. And for this to be a case, there has to be in view there this divine master, this divine power, someone who is over the king of Israel at the time of the writing, right? King David. Now, hold that in your mind for a moment and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. And you can drop down to verse 41. So Matthew 22 
and look with me in verse 41. Because I want to show you how Jesus handled this verse. Okay, we see starting with verse 41. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? And, and, and kids, when you, hear, when you hear me say the word Christ, or when you hear mom and dad say the word Christ, think of the word Messiah, or think of the word anointed one, which, which means the, the one who would come and save us, or the one who came and saved us. But Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they answered, they said to him, the son of David, okay? And they're thinking as it relates to the, the genealogical lineage of the Messiah, okay? And he said to them, here's the question he posed, what he's trying to get at here. How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, quote, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 45, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. This was the, like, the grand silencing of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders, right? Now, this is significant for us to consider together. All right, we see Jesus, and this is before his faux trial that he was put on. This is before his crucifixion, okay? He's pushing the, the Jewish religious leaders, the, which are the Pharisees, right, as it relates to the coming Messiah. And remember, they didn't believe Jesus to be the Messiah, right? And he asked them, what do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? And they say, the son of David. And then he asked this follow-up question. His follow-up question brings clarity to us as it relates to how we should see and interpret Psalm 110, because he uses Psalm 110. Jesus says, how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? And he quotes Psalm 110.1. Now, stop there for a moment. Right? Jesus says that David wrote Psalm 110 in the Spirit, Right? That is under the inspiration of the third person of the Trinity, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So a couple of things. There's no doubt that King David is the human author of Psalm 110. And there is no doubt that the Holy Spirit of God is the one, according to Jesus, who inspired David to write those words, right? So we see Jesus assert this, and then we see that he says that when David says, my Lord... He's speaking of the Christ. He's speaking of the Messiah. He's speaking of the anointed one. So, so King David, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he speaks of this coming future Lord, a coming future master, who he already knows is his master, right? This Lord, who's one that's, according to this psalm, seated and ruling over his enemies, in the midst of his enemies. In this verse in Psalm 110, it gives us a window, if you will, into just the, the sovereign plan of God, right? We see the, the triune God in this psalm taking counsel with himself, and we see that this plan includes the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the divine Messiah, the divine ruler, making his enemies 
his footstool. And David by the Spirit, right, the third person of the Trinity, he speaks of this glorious reality. And again, he does this way before the incarnation. So when you read and when you consider Psalm 110, you should perhaps consider it as the messianic psalm. And this first verse that we're looking at, by the way, uh, it's the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. In other words, the biblical writers thought that this verse was extremely critical in their speaking about Christ, in their speaking about the kingdom of Christ, in them speaking about his lordship. So this is a psalm that we should be familiar with, especially familiar with how the New Testament writers used it and demonstrated how it found its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. So, so with that established, let's think through some practical aspects of this psalm together. And if you're taking notes, the first thing that I'd have you write down is this. And kids, you can look on with your companion worship guide with your mom and dad, but the first thing I'd have you think through is this. Jesus is king now. Jesus is king now. Right? We're, we're not waiting for Jesus to be king. Right? We're not electing Jesus as king. Right? The decisions that people make as it relates to what they believe about Jesus, it has no bearing whatsoever, no effect whatsoever on Christ's authority, on Christ's kingship. Look back at the first two verses with me. And again, we should be getting familiar with these first two verses. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Right? Not rule after your enemies are conquered, but rule even in the midst of your enemies. And how does the New Testament describe what Jesus is doing now? And I've I've read you this passage several times over the last couple of weeks, but it's worthy of us harmonizing this with Psalm 10, the first two verses of Psalm 110. But Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, he, speaking of Christ, he's the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, get this, this is the similar language we see in Psalm 110, right? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. If we were to survey more of Hebrews, We would see that the the author of Hebrews clearly ascribes Psalm 110 as being fulfilled in Jesus. He quotes from it in the sermon that he gives to the Jewish Christians at the time. But the author of Hebrews, he says that Jesus sat down, that he's seated, that he's doing what Psalm 110 prophesied about. In this this seated position, is symbolic of his present ruling and his present reigning over everything, over everything. Think about this. What about the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples, right? This this larger-than-life task that he gave them before he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sat down. All right, we know it and we're familiar with it, right? Known as the Great Commission, but we often leave out verse 18, right? And if you've heard me preach for any length of time, you know that's a bit of a pet peeve for me, right? But verse 18 says, Jesus came to them, came to the disciples, and he said to them, all authority, what? 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, in other words, go in light of his authority and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. One commentator puts it this way, Psalms such as Psalm 2 or Psalm 18 or Psalm 21 or 72 and Psalm 110, he includes our psalm in there. They're not random exaltations of a militaristic monarch. They express in the language and idiom of time the conviction that it is through the coming king, the human one, Israel's anointed representative, that Yahweh will establish his rule on earth as it is in heaven. All right. This is why, as we see the first advent ministry of Jesus, and first advent meaning when he came right in the incarnation, when we see the first Advent ministry of Jesus, and we see, we see that his call to repent and believe, it comes with the announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand. All right, you've heard me say this, but when Jesus came, he brought his kingdom with him. He brought his kingdom with him. And when Jesus resurrected, as he said that he would do, right, what we see as we look back, what we see as we survey a book, like the book of Acts that documents for us the spread of the early church, right? What we see is the kingdom of God spreading, the gospel of God going forth by the power of the Spirit, like a mustard seed that grows into a large tree or like leaven that leavens the whole lump, right? So Jesus, he's, he's king now and his kingdom has come and it will definitive, definitively come one day on earth as it is in heaven. And that, if you're a Christian, is truly good news, right? In a world filled with corruption, in a world filled with corrupt politicians and leaders, we have a king. We have a king. And our king is good. The author of Hebrews in his sermon, and particularly in Hebrews chapter 12, the the two last verses in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, he says that the the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom that will not be shaken. And the picture that should paint for us is uh, that of this this cosmic shaking. That's that's what's going on now, and that's what's going to continue to go on, right? In, in, In this grand cosmic shaking, all things that are opposed to Christ and opposed to his kingdom, they're going to crumble, they're going to crumble. They're going to topple. But as the dust settles, it's Christ's kingdom that remains. Right? As the dust settles, it's Christ's kingdom that remains. It is the only thing that's not shaken. And, and that should fill us with hope. Right? No matter what's going on in our lives, Christ and his kingdom will not be shaken. No matter how much the enemies of God seem to advance, no matter how, as the psalmist in Psalm 2 says, no matter how the nation's rage... Right? Christ and his kingdom will not be shaken. Christ is king now. He's going to be king for all eternity. There's no competition. There's no, there's no uh, opposite of Christ's kingdom, truly. There's wickedness, there's evil, there's Satan, there's the domain of darkness, but it would be inappropriate for us to think that that's his opposite. He's all-powerful. There's no match 
The rest of my takeaways this morning, and I'm going to get to takeaway two here in a second, they're going to follow the Baptist Catechism, which is what we use with our children here at Deer Park Fellowship, because I think it captures clearly and succinctly what we should see and confess as it relates to Christ's kingship. So if you're taking notes, the next thing I have you write down is this. Christ performs the office of the king by subduing us to himself. He performs the office of the king by subduing us to himself. I read you the Great Commission already, right? These instructions to the disciples to make other disciples of all nations and to give those disciples Trinitarian baptism, uh, baptisms and to teach the disciples to obey everything that God's Word says and, uh, and to do all of that in, in Christ's authority. And as you do it, to remember that Christ is near you, that Christ is with you to the end of the age. But... Think and consider, again, these three verses in Psalm 110 again, just in light of that, right? particularly this, this, because I think we see sort of Great Commission language here, and we see the, this, um, the, the phrase uh, of, of Yahweh making Christ's enemies his footstool, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of, uh, the rod of your strength out of Zion, right? Not, a, not, a, not out of Sinai, which is where the law came from, right? But out of, out of Zion, right? Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers, the day of your power and the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. Right? In, in Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, we see this prophecy given by the angel to, to Mary regarding Jesus, a, a passage that a lot of people read and are familiar with at Christmas, but they never connect it to the kingship of Christ. It says, he'll be great. He'll be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, meaning over his people. And then this promise, and of his kingdom, there will be no end, right? Of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, one of the ways that Jesus makes his enemies his footstool is by conquering them through the gospel, Right, if you're a Christian this morning, right, that's what he did for you. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for me. Right? He conquered us through the Spirit of God, applying the righteousness of Jesus to our lives. Right? A righteousness that's not inherent in us, but a righteousness that's external, a righteousness that's outside of us, the righteousness of Christ. And the New Testament says that apart from the sacrificial death and the resurrection of Christ applied to us, we're God's enemies. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 10. It says elsewhere, and I quoted this to you last week, that we're by nature what? Children of what? Of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Yet God, in His grace, in His mercy, right? He, he conquered us by subduing our hearts with the gospel, by taking our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And that's all of God's doing. That's all of grace. If you're a Christian, it's because the Lord has lovingly, affectionately subdued, meaning He's overcome, right? Our rebellion, and what of those sitting here this morning who aren't Christians, right, who aren't trusting in Christ? Well, the message of the gospel, the call of the gospel isn't 
Try it out and see how you like it. All right? The gospel call isn't make Jesus Lord of your life. The gospel call is a command. It's a command by the good king, the Lord of all, to repent of your particular sins and to find refuge in him, to find refuge in Christ. Again, the words of Jesus, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what will you find there? What do you find when you respond to that command? Not an arbitrary king, but a good king, and a king who frees captives from the slavery that is sin, a king who chooses to be close to his people and a very present help, and his kingdom is one of green pastures and still waters. Right? In his kingdom, you find rest for your weary soul. So repent and believe the good news that, that Christ came to save sinners. That's the place that we find joy, because it's only in Christ that we find joy. We experience joy. Three, Christ performs the office of king by ruling and defending us. Performs the office of king by ruling and defending us. And another aspect of Christ's kingship as he is a, the type of king that not only rules over his people, but he's a defender of his people. I think of Psalm 110 in light of Matthew chapter 2, another passage that we read perhaps around Christmas. It's what the wise, man, wise men said to King Herod. Um, uh, and at that time, they told him of another king, right? a, a greater king, right? one that King Herod thought was a threat to his, his throne. But they said, so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you, out of the line of Judah, right, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, right? Ruler, again, thinking in terms of Lord, the way that David in the psalm ascribes Lord there. But this is a ruler who shepherds. What a thought. A ruler who shepherds, a ruler that's so intimately involved in the lives of his people that even if one of them wanders, he leaves the 99, right? A ruler who's so involved in the lives of his people that his people distinguish between his voice and the voice of an imposter, the voice of a wolf, right? This king is the good shepherd that again leads his sheep into the land of green pastures and beside still waters. This king is the door into the sheepfold. In other words, he's the safe way in. Right? This king is the one who doesn't leave when wolves approach to devour. Right? This king is the one who actively expands the number of his sheep. He brings other sheep into the fold. Right? This king's the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. And this king's the good shepherd that won't allow any of his sheep to be snatched away from him. In other words, he'll see his sheep home. Right? So Christ is king. He rules and he defends us, and he does that primarily as a shepherd does. The last thing I'd have you see is that Christ performs the office of king by restraining and conquering all of his enemies. And just by the way, you think things are bad. Imagine if in God's common grace he wasn't restraining wickedness. You know, not just in what we see in society, but in our own hearts. Right. Verses 5 to 7, the Lord 
is, <clears throat> the Lord's at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He will fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Those are sobering words, aren't they? If you look around and you're tempted to despair, the Scripture teaches us that there is such thing as cosmic justice, and our good king is also a good judge. Consider what I just read in light of Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 and 26, He must reign till he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Two enemies, according to Psalm 110 and how the Apostle Paul uses Psalm 110 in his letter to the church of Corinth. There are those who live all their days in rebellion, and they will be brought into subjection, right? They'll be brought low. They'll experience the wrath of the king. We've seen this in cycles all throughout history, haven't we? Wars and famines and natural disasters, right? Jesus rules even in the presence of his enemies, which means judgments are executed even now. Even now, there's such thing as cosmic justice, right? In other words, the rebellion that we see and that we experience, and I would even say again, the rebellion even in our own hearts, it's not an indicator that Christ does not presently reign, right? The state of our society at large right now, as I've told you before, it's not an indicator that Jesus doesn't presently reign. Rather, it's evidence of God's wrath over his enemies even now. But there's also a day coming, right? A a, a great, awful, terrifying day in many ways, right? A fixed day, this, this great day of judgment when men will be judged either by the biography of our good king, Jesus, right? and they'll live in everlasting peace with God, or men will be judged by their own biographies, And all of those that are found outside of Christ, all of those who have refused to obey the call of the gospel will experience the wrath of God for all eternity, a wrath hotter than what's experienced now, wrath hotter than that. All enemies are conquered, either through the gospel or through wrath. It's either Jesus took the wrath of God for you or you take the wrath of God for all eternity. And I've told you this before, but it's true that all roads lead to God, meaning that all people are going to stand before their maker, right? That's where the path ends that we're all on, that everybody's on. And we'll either live in everlasting happiness with the triune God, or we're going to live in everlasting torment under his judgment. Either way, the enemies of Christ are made his footstool. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, right? I read some of this at the call to worship. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God's highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The final enemy, as all the other enemies are put under Christ's feet. I don't don't know the sequence of events, right? The ordering of of it all, but the other enemy is death, right? Human death that was a result of sin, a result of the fall. 
When we sing, especially around Christmas time, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the what? Curse is found, right? The main aspect of the curse is death. And the return of Jesus is the final undoing of that curse. That's why Isaac Watts had the second coming in mind when he penned the hymn, Joy to the World. But what will definitively be conquered at the return of Jesus, it began 2,000 years ago, right? Through his bodily and eternal resurrection, Jesus truly conquered death, hell, and the grave. And, And one day, When we rise in Jesus, bodily and eternally, the enemy that's death will finally and forever be vanquished. In other words, the resurrection of our good king means our resurrection. So we're reminded this morning, Jesus is king now. Jesus conquers his people by subduing our hearts. Jesus rules and defends us, and he restrains and conquers all of his enemies. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. God, we ask that you would help to increase our faith as it relates to Jesus and his rule and his reign. And God, that that would motivate us to live a particular way to the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.